Hello, everyone. Welcome back to IXDA Stories, offering stories by the Interaction Design Association community for the community. Each episode this season, we'll be taking a deep dive with some of the thought leaders and partners of the upcoming Interaction 21 conference. I'm your host, Elaine Mathias. Today, we're talking with Eddie Isaac, head of the Financial Products UX team at Bloomberg, our presenting partner for Interaction 21. Eddie first became interested in 3D graphics and virtual reality in high school, which led him to pursue his passion, understanding how cutting-edge technology can improve our lives. He earned his bachelor's degree in computer science at UC San Diego. He went on to receive his MS and PhD in computer science from Columbia University. Working in the Computer Graphics and User Interfaces Lab under Professor Stephen Feiner. He has worked and consulted for Microsoft, the Palo Alto Research Center, Google, and various internet companies, designing and building desktop, mobile, and web user interfaces. He's even helped build 3D UIs in the field of augmented reality. Today, he leads a multidisciplinary UX team composed of interaction designers, visual designers, UI engineers, operations people, researchers, technical writers, and QA specialists. They're charged with exploring innovative ways to solve challenging interaction and visualization problems in the financial domain on an expert desktop system, the iconic Bloomberg Terminal, as well as mobile environments. Let's discover how this former college baseball pitcher and his team have dealt with the curveballs thrown at them over the past year and the lessons they're taking away from the shift to remote work during the pandemic. Here's Alexi Morin speaking with Eddie Isaac of Bloomberg. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. So quickly, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, well, I, I lead the UX team at Bloomberg. It's uh, it's a very multidisciplinary team. Um I am the design head there, but I started out about 11 years ago at Bloomberg as an interaction designer. And uh, over the years, we grew pretty quickly. So I became a team leader and then finally a department head. Before that, I uh, was doing web development and front-end design, um, mainly because I was a computer science guy. I I studied computer science at an undergraduate level as well as uh, I got my PhD in computer science, focusing on um, u- user interface techniques and research in, in uh, not only standard you know, UI that we use every day, but is futuristic three-dimensional user interfaces, both in virtual reality and augmented reality. So my interests were very much lined up in you know, how humans use machines and then migrated over into um, building software for financial professionals worldwide. That's quite the jump, quite the transition. Yeah. I don't know if I saw myself doing this 15 years ago, but I certainly love what I do. I love solving problems for people. Um, I love employ employing design thinking as a, as a method for solving problems. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that, but, um, I certainly love my job. Well, after 11 years, I, I, I hope you do. <laughs> I hope you do. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about uh, 
about your UX team at Bloomberg. Yeah, sure. So the user experience team at Bloomberg, we work primarily on our financial products, which all centers around this the Bloomberg terminal. You've probably heard of the terminal. That is our main product. It has been since the company started back in the early 80s. Uh, the terminal, it's used worldwide by over 325,000 financial professionals. So anyone from your, your average stock trader to your fund manager to the CFO, even your chief executive officer, um, they may have a terminal at their desk. And it's the bread and butter of our Bloomberg product suite. It's, you know, it's if you care about the world financial markets, you have a Bloomberg terminal. So we work primarily on that. Um, we're a very multidisciplinary team, so we're not just designers. We are made up of primarily IX designers, but we have visual designers, we have UI engineers, we have operations people, we have the technical writers that write all the help documentation, as well as other you know user assistance content. We have quality assurance people. We're very we're pretty multifaceted and actually pretty complete as it pertains to having all the skills and the components we need to not just be functional, but very productive, very self-sufficient as a, as a UX organization goes. It's a fantastic group of individuals, um, very, very talented. We've won a few awards along the way. For example, the team won the uh, grand prize at the 2012 UX Awards that was organized by the Summit for Exceptional Digital Experience. In 2017, we won the AIGA Corporate Leadership Award. Uh, it's a phenomenal team. I'm very fortunate to be to be leading this team. Why does a company like Bloomberg uh, take part in an event like Interaction 21? It's a question we get a lot. Uh, Bloomberg for many people is potentially the TV, the radio. Um, yes, they know about this terminal. It's for finance. Um, but Bloomberg's UX team is our core discipline is interaction design, first and foremost. And on this team, the interaction designer actually is the project lead. So when we start a new project, we assign an interaction designer to that project. So it's, it's really the discipline. This discipline is at the heart of what we at Bloomberg and our UX team do. We've sponsored the Interaction Conference several times in the past, um, and we've been really pleased about the quality of the program. Uh, you know, the keynote speakers, the attendees, the, the community as a whole. So we're, we're actually really happy to be continuing to be a large part of it this year. And actually this year in particular, you know, we're the Bloomberg UX is the, the presenting sponsor. Um, it's also sponsoring this one-to-one -one ticket matching program, which we're super excited about. This is where, um, as you know, each uh, purchase ticket uh, is, as well as those included in the sponsor packages, um, for each one of those purchase tickets, another one will be donated to someone who otherwise would not be able to attend the conference. That kind of giving back and that kind of program at least gets us at Bloomberg really excited. A conference like this, when they give back to the community, it really it perfectly aligns with actually Bloomberg as a firm, their philosophy and their initiatives as a company. Uh, I'm not sure if you know this, but you know Mike Bloomberg, our majority owner and founder, he has already pledged to give away his wealth and profits over the coming years. And so, you know, Bloomberg has always been putting its money and efforts into communities around the world to make the world just a better place. You know, we donate our time, we donate our skills, and I'll, I'll speak to a little bit about that. Um, but uh, we donate our resources. 
and like I said, a majority of our profits. So super excited to be a part of, of interaction this, this year. That's actually super fascinating to me and something I had never thought to associate Bloomberg with. And the one-to-one ticket matching program obviously is a, is a result of the unique situation that we have going on uh, last year and this year as well. And it allows us to be the most inclusive and financially accessible interaction conference that we've ever had. And so we're going to have, we're going to be including voices from all over the world, from people who would never have thought of attending this interaction conference otherwise. So we're actually also extremely excited that you're partnering uh, with us on this program. So thank you very much. You're most welcome. Going back to how unique this year have, has been and how everyone is is pivoting in their own way and finding their own silver lining. How has the pandemic impacted Bloomberg's design culture? Right. Well, I, I guess everyone has been dealing with this this past year. It's, it's obviously would not be a surprise if I told you it was very disruptive to us initially. I mean, it's important to know that uh, the culture at Bloomberg is extremely open. Um, even Mike Bloomberg himself, the founder and majority owner, sits at an open desk. Anyone can see what he's doing and walk up to him if they have a question. So, like, why is it this way? Well, a couple of reasons. This idea of transparency actually stems from the birth of the original Bloomberg product. I mean, the whole idea of Bloomberg, the Bloomberg terminal was to bring transparency to the bond markets that didn't have it back in the early 80s. So you walk into the building and you see transparency. Um, And something else I would add is that this idea of having empathy for our customers. And they knew this back then when they started the company, working the way our customers work would have allow us to have more empathy for our customers. And that's great. As a designer, you love to hear this kind of design thinking mentality of, of user empathy. So our designers and actually every Bloomberg employee uh, was working the same way our customers was working in an open, you know, walk up to the wall instantly and, and start to collaborate if you needed to kind of collaboration setting. And so when we went, we went home in 2020, in March 2020, when the pandemic hit, the culture took a, it was a major shock to the culture. It had to adjust. So, sorry, let me now actually answer your question. What was the impact on this culture? Initially, very significant. Obviously, we were now all virtual. Um, we would schedule these daily video calls initially, like you know, sometimes even twice a day see how people are doing, always like, how are you doing? How are you doing? We're constantly checking in, getting status updates. And of course, you're dealing with these individual circumstances that would come up like, you know, maybe some health issues, unfortunately, or homeschooling issues. And quite frankly, our senior leadership and our UX leadership, very, very empathetic, very supportive to nearly every circumstance that came up. It was was impressive. But it was not easy trying to find that balance of a very open environment we were all in in February to a very closed one that basically changed overnight. And we were getting this video conference fatigue. I think we all know what that means. Um, But having said that, in some ways, video conferencing now like leveled the playing field in terms of seats at the table in any meeting, right? I mean, if you had eight people go into a meeting room at Bloomberg, you might have four or five people sit at the table, maybe a few people stand up because there's not enough room, a small meeting room. Uh, and so you get like the people who are literally sitting at the table, maybe the primary contributors and then people in the background, maybe just flies on the wall. But now everyone looks the same on the screen. You go virtual and you got eight boxes with eight people's faces in those boxes. 
how did all of this change and the disruption change how you manage your team remotely? And how did you keep your team engaged throughout being physically distanced and physically apart? Yeah, so this this is probably something else a lot of teams just experience, not just design teams. I mean, we're all at home. There's no shared physical space anymore. Remember, the, uh, the open office plan, um, employees are walking by my desk all the time. I'm walking by their desk. It sounds cliche, right? But yes, we would have conversations, these serendipitous conversations at the water cooler. And that's just not happening anymore. So how do you engage with your team in a way that's natural? In a way, being at home, it democratized my exposure to the team. And what I mean by that is like everyone now has an equal opportunity to talk to me and I have an equal opportunity to talk to other people. So what happened was we would have these non-work interactions at the beginning that were forced and that just didn't work. So we, we had to quickly figure out how to make it fun. Uh, we would do these virtual happy hours. We would, um, get creative and, and we found these virtual escape rooms where you'd solve problems together and do these team building activities. Uh, we actually have a group at Bloomberg responsible for volunteering in the community. And they set up virtual volunteering, which was kind of interesting and very cool. And it got people to work together in a non-work environment um, and help out, you know, for example, nonprofits in the community organize their digital content so you could do it remotely. So we got these fun activities on the calendar of everyone to keep people engaged. So we figured it out. We found out these ways, these these ways of 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 having these serendipitous conversations, maybe through a forced uh, planned activity, but didn't have to talk about work. You kind of have to have empathy for all the different types of people and circumstances on your team. And, and I think this thing, the, the things we did brought them all uh, closer together. How has your team changed the way it operates? For example, I'm talking about the nitty gritty of the design rituals, uh, the research, the user testing, or even hiring um, or team meetings or engaging with internal, external clients and stakeholders, for example? That's a good question. Um, so we were already using a lot of tools to collaborate, especially the design team. So they adapted pretty quickly. Actually, the real issue was our customer research uh, operations, like how we did research. I mean, how do you visit customers when you're at home and now they're at home? Well, the answer is, of course, you know, have a video chat with them. But that wasn't so straightforward. And there's these, you know, corporate firewalls and all these other protocols. Now you have to kind of consider. So we had to figure out a, a virtual, you know, UX research lab solution. And as we know, you know, necessity is the, the mother of invention. And of course, we use the same process to solve this problem as we do with any problem, right? Quickly hone in to find the right combination of, of the software and the settings to, to make like the video recording work, the screen capturing work, the remote support work, um, all that had to work through, again, all the, the various firewalls and protocols that typically stand in the way between two different firms trying to communicate. Of, of course, all of this with, with the customer's consent. So believe it or not, actually, a really nice silver lining, huge silver lining, we were actually able to scale our customer research practice to visit vastly more clients than we had ever visited before the pandemic. And that was that was a real plus for us. We're going to hopefully carry that on as uh, even after we do go back to work. 
Um, and we're still hiring too, right? How are we going to hire people if we can't bring them into the office and have day long design sessions that would normally, you know, when we evaluate a candidate for a design position, um, shameless plug, by the way, we're still hiring uh, Bloomberg.com slash UX is the, is the website. Um, but you know, what, what we would do, we would fill four walls worth of whiteboards of design sketches in a single interview, right? We go into a room and spend pretty much the whole day solving design problems with the candidate. How do you replace that? And you might think, okay, well, we did that with the UX lab. We went completely technological and figured out what technology would solve this problem. But that just didn't work when we we're doing the hiring. It just seems so clunky and it's not very scalable. So honestly, we went low tech. We said, we're going to have the video chat. But the candidate who's interviewing for a job, uh, but nothing beats paper and pencil when sketching. I mean, every designer will tell you that. So during the interviews, we would tell the candidate, be prepared with your video chat and a Sharpie and a stack of eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper because you're going to be doing some sketching. And it worked. Very low tech, but um, it worked really well. And we actually got to hire several really good designers as a result. So. Um, it's, we adapted with technology on one side and with just low-tech solutions on the other side. Yeah, sometimes the best solutions are not to go high-tech, but actually the opposite. And thank you for that cool story. I might uh, steal some of those ideas from you for myself. <laughs> My pleasure. Your customers are also working from home. What does that change for them? And how did your team adapt to helping Bloomberg's clients and customers take advantage of the Bloomberg terminal when working from home? Uh, I'm glad you asked this because actually the Bloomberg UX team was very central in finding solutions for our customers, for our paying customers, right? So the whole company scrambled to figure out how to best serve now all of our clients who are not at work now and are going home. So the first thing we did, because my UX team is very broad in terms of the businesses we serve, we were able to compile these, you know, tips and tricks across all the products that we that we design and put them together in a usable way and serve them on the terminal so our clients could could easily, you know, change some settings here or some configurations there to tweak and get the most out of the at least the most popular applications on the Bloomberg um, to more easily work on a smaller display. That was the main idea. Um, but I, I just have to briefly describe to you how a typical client uses the terminal in the office. A vast majority of our clients are using very large displays, multiple very large displays. I mean, 30 to 40, maybe somewhere, sometimes up to 100 different applications running at the exact same time. And some need three, four, five, and you'll even see in extreme cases, eight displays to view all this massive amount of information simultaneously. Now, why do they need this? Think about it. If you need access to any data point, and you possibly thousands of them at any point in time, it's so much faster to just glance at it because it's sitting right there than to have to alt tab to it or you know command tab to it if you're using a Mac or to minimize an overlapping window or move it or um, just turn your head and glance at it. Well, that. Yeah, that's easier. Uh, monitors are cheap. $300 monitor, extend your setup to be to have more screen space. And now you can see that data point whenever you need it instantly. So that's the approach our clients take. So now imagine a stock trader with like three, four, five, you know, 4K monitors. And you do the math here, you know, 4K is something like 8 million pixels per monitor. You know, you've got 
millions and millions of pixels. And when I say million, I literally, my right pinky is touching my upper lip like Dr. Evil. I mean, like so many pixels. This trader now goes home, is now on this 15-inch laptop. I mean, orders of magnitude less screen real estate. This is a problem. This is a real problem. So yes, the Bloomberg terminal lets you work on smaller displays. Um, it lets you have multiple workspace setups. Uh, we actually call this uh, the workspace setup um, Launchpad. But you have to set it up. You, you don't just, it doesn't just instantly work. You have to tell the setup what you want. And so every client, not every client had actually worked from home up to now. Now every client is working at home. So this is like somewhat of a Bloomberg customer support nightmare. Our sales force, typically very high touch, uh, is part of that Bloomberg appeal, right? It's why customers choose Bloomberg. Our sales force would offer white glove service generally to our customers and help them set up their workspace, both at work or at home. So yes, some customers had it set up, but not nearly the number that needed to get it set up back in March or April. The volume of, of customers just too high. So the UX team went to work. We went to work with our senior sales people, with our platform engineering team. We quickly did the research, both quantitative and qualitative, the design, the testing, the iteration. And we finally, uh, very quickly, released a wizard-like tool to serve thousands of customers without needing so much sales intervention to set up their workspace at home. It's something we'd always thought about doing, but we didn't really need it until now. And the UX team was a central part of this effort. And so uh, I'm very proud to say that we were, we were, uh, we were uh, instrumental in allowing our customers to work from home more effectively. Yeah, absolutely. And I can easily imagine many of your customers wanting to stay at home and keep working from there. Um, in that same train of thought, what are some of the lessons that you and your team have learned during the pandemic that will actually live on once you return to the offices? Good question. Um, we can now re work remotely, not just functionally, we can actually be productive. Um, so that's a good, that's a good sign. What uh, I'm excited about is that the stuff that we've learned working from home, for example, you know, increasing our bandwidth of customer interviews, like I mentioned earlier, we have access now not only to this virtual lab, but we'll have access to the physical lab as well. And we and so that will further increase our throughput in terms of getting our research across all the products that we uh, designed done. One thing I think we're not going to be able to figure out until we get back to the office is how a hybrid environment is going to work. I'm really curious to see how that how that's going to play out where, you know, if if when we transition back, you know, some of us are at home and some of us are in the office. We had a little bit of that, but it was, you know, like a it was more like a 95-5 split, uh, most of us in the office. When it goes to 595 and then the 2080 and then 50-50, it's going to be interesting to see how we how we cope with that. Absolutely. Um, thank you for those those great lessons learned. No, it's my pleasure. I was really happy to speak to you, and um, thanks for the opportunity. Well, we for sure are looking very much forward to uh, to seeing you on the virtual Interaction Twenty One floor, and and interacting with uh, you and your team.
I love Eddie's positivity and reflexive approach to design, how he applies design thinking to how he works with his team, and how it has resulted in some silver linings and dividends for the Bloomberg team. Who'd have thought that concepts of transparency and empathy could underpin so radically how the company has come together? It's also always really interesting to hear about the design problems faced by teams working with people who operate at the bleeding edge of whatever they're working on, which definitely includes day traders tracking thousands of data points across tens of millions of pixels. We're very grateful for the continued support of design-driven organizations like Bloomberg. And as we mentioned earlier, we're particularly excited about how they've joined us in making this year's conference the most accessible yet. Don't forget to stop in and say hi to the Bloomberg team at Interaction 21. Our guest this episode was Eddie Isaac. Our interviewer was Alexi Morin. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Peter Last. I'm your host, Elaine Mathias. The music is by New Tendencies. You can find their socials in the show notes. Thanks for letting us use it. We are a team of volunteers who love what they do and want to make a positive impact on the field of interaction design. Don't miss our upcoming episodes by subscribing to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.